go ahead and read this passage this morning, which is Micah chapter 2. Micah chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Here it is. Woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans on their beds. At morning light they accomplish it because the power is in their hands. They covet fields and seize them. They also take houses and they deprive a man of his home, a person of his inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I am now planning disaster against this nation. You cannot free your necks from it. Then you will walk so proudly because it will be an evil time. And that day you will take up a taunt against you and lament mournfully, saying, we are totally ruined. He measures out the allotted land of my people. He removes it from me. He allots our fields to traitors. Therefore, there will be no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by casting lots. Quit your preaching, they preach. They should, not, they should not preach these things. Shame will not overtake us. House of Jacob, should it be asked, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these the things he does? Don't my words bring good to the one who walks uprightly? But recently my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the splendid robe from those who are passing through confidently like those returning from war. You force the women of my people out of their comfortable homes. And you take my blessing from their children forever. Get up and leave, for this is not your place of rest. Because defilement brings destruction, a grievous destruction. If a man comes and utters empty lies, I will preach to you about wine and beer. He would be just the preacher for this people. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we are uh, all gathered here uh, in your presence to hear all that it is that you have for us this morning. Lord, and I pray for Pastor Scott as he preaches your word, and as your word goes out of his mouth, I pray that it would accomplish the purpose for which you send it, Lord. And we ask your help by the power of your spirit for all these things. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. Hey, it's great to be here. Uh, love hanging out with Ricky whenever I get a chance. And uh, just love uh, that we can partner in the gospel with you, Crossroads Church, Wellspring Church, to see the name of Christ made known um, throughout this state and beyond. So uh, just an honor to be here with you. Micah chapter 2, where we are, you guys are in a series called Future Now, right? God is, is at work now, and there are things coming in the future. God's promised in his word, and that affects now. That affects how we live now. That's very much part of the message of the book of Micah, as you know, um, Micah was a hillbilly preacher, much like myself and Ricky, a hillbilly prophet whom God had commissioned. He's from the southwestern hills of the, it was an area called the Shephelah in, in Israel, um, to give um, God's own perspective on their condition. Uh, and here he's, he's uh, talking, he's addressing most of the southern kingdom, but both of theirs. Uh, to the, he's giving God's perspective on their condition um, to them. So he summarizes, Micah is summarizing, um, this is just, just a review by the way, you guys have already been here the first and second 
sermons in the series, but he summarizes among the 12 prophets the nature of their sin, uh, the nature of their sin against the Lord. They'd been going through the motions uh, spiritually, go, going to the temple, doing all the temple stuff, doing all the church stuff, keeping the prescribed festivals and whatnot that God had given them. All good. But they were a selfish people, a dishonest people, filled with discontentment, filled with defrauding one another, and filled with prosperity preachers. We're going to see today as we read. How does, how does God feel in, in our own day and age? How does God feel in history when children are taken from their parents, say by an unjust government or human traffickers, or when greedy landlords cheat and steal and lie and extort, or when we walk around in, in his world every day with air in our lungs that he's given us, grumbling in our hearts, coveting those around us. We're looking at this theme, future now, in the book of Micah, how our future in Christ impacts, how it should impact our thinking and our living now. How do we live the future now, the realities of the future, with our eyes to what God is doing? How do we live in that now? Scripture paints us a picture of the future as being marked by peace and rest in the Lord. If you're in Christ, that's your future. Christ reigning with his people in the new heavens and new earth. It's going to be sweet. No more conflict between God's holiness and our sin. And it and an end to injustice and violence and rebellion and robbery and coveting. Like, can you imagine this town with even one of those completely removed? What that would change about this town, what that would change about my town in Morgantown. God, that's the future. God's vanquishing of all who stubbornly hold on to their sin and God perfecting all who submit to the one who died to set sinners free. That's the future. That's what he's up to. That's where this is going. That's what the Bible lays out for us. As you spend time in the Bible, those things become clear. How do we live that future now? This passage that we're looking at this morning gives us a couple of critical realizations for you and I. Critical realizations that we should make our own in order to let the future invade the present. In order to let the future invade our present way of life. So two big realizations, one pack these. First one is that God sentences, like this is like a courtroom scene. God delivers a sentence through, through Micah the prophet. Their covetousness and their thievery. So that's the first thing. God sentences the covetous and thieves. We'll see that in the first five verses. The second thing we're going to see in the, in the last couple of verses, verses 6 through 11, is that God rejects those who reject his word. God rejects those who reject his word. This is a sobering passage. These are sobering truths. And, and by the end of it, as we work through it, you're going to see uh, how the gospel leaks through this passage. So the first thing is that God sentences the covetous 
and thieves. You see this verse, verses 1 to 5. And, and the first reason for God's sentencing, for God's punishment. He's going to describe the punishment. But first he's going to describe the sin. The thieving and coveting. Look at verse 1. It says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their, the power of their hand. They covet fields and they seize them in houses and they take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. God hates thieving and coveting. Firstly, thieving. God hates thieving. They, they steal, notice what's described here, they're stealing the hard work of a man and his household, his property, his home, his land, his hard work, his inheritance. In the original context, what's going on here um, in Judah, the land was a sacred trust from the Lord to the nation within the tribal allotments, uh, the family groups of the nation. And those allotments, even if they did some buying and selling and lending of land, were to be returned to those same families uh, every, every what's called the year of Jubilee. They had to be retained within those tribes and clans. This was God's sacred heritage to them for the covenant purposes of that nation leading up to the coming of Christ. That nation served a very particular Purpose and reason, so this land serves to that end. The land was essential, and it is today, right? Uh, your property is, is important for your survival, uh, and especially then. Uh, in an agrarian society, it's essential to the survival uh, of a man and his family, his kids, his wife, their well-being, the well-being of society, right? The result of robbery may well have been led to, think about this, uh, homelessness, destitution, and slavery. And so what he's describing here is you got some robbers running around. Maybe some guys with some power and influence and wealth finding and figuring out who they can take advantage of. And he's condemning their thievery, their, their robbery. God hates any time anyone takes from the hard work or inheritance of another. That's what he has in mind. That's what he's addressing. Stealing, what is that? I mean, maybe you feel like, man, I'm not a robber. I mean, there's a few of those that pop up in the news, but, but that's not me. But stealing really seeks to obtain what I don't have through means that dishonor God, disobey God, and use others. Anything that I would do to disobey him to get that which he has not given me or that he has given to another is stealing, is robbery. Stealing then is oppressive by nature. It's oppressive. And that's what he unpacks here. They're taking houses. Oppressing is the word he uses in verse 2. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. It is oppressive by nature. Originally, maybe referring to the greedy land grabbers who are seizing land due to unpaid debts. Like people would buy uh, or uh, rent out a property to grow some crops. Maybe a bad season came upon them. Maybe, uh, maybe a famine or something wrong with the soil, and so they end up in hard times. And they'd find a way. These greedy guys would find a way to 
to make the land uh, theirs, and, and it would harm this family. As a result of crop failures, uh, they end up not being able to pay back the land that they had purchased uh, through a loan of some sort. So that's probably what's going on in the original context. They, they exploit legal loopholes. They invent definitional ambiguity into the law to seize the inherited land of covenant, which God commanded be kept with those particular tribes and with those uh, particular clans. And this is true beyond like that nation, right? The nation of Israel for that covenant purpose. It's true anywhere, this kind of thing that happens. God hates it. They have made themselves at war. Look at verse 8. Um, some of this drips through the rest of the passage, but verse 8, he says, but lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe of those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. It's like a picture of a guy coming back from war. He just fought the war. So he's back in his homeland. He's not expecting war. He's coming back. He's tired. He's ready to see his family, ready to get back to his house. And here, he says, you have risen up against him as an enemy. Here, he's not in a time of war. He's coming back. And you make yourself at war against him. They've made themselves at war against innocent people. This is a, a hardworking man in, in verse 8. Like warring enemies, he says, you drive women from their homes. Look at verse 9. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses, from their young children. You take away my splendor forever. And we aren't even down in these verses yet, but I mean this stuff is popping up all through the passage. This indictment, this sentence against them and the reason for it. Like warring enemies, they drive women from their homes and children from their splendor. Is what verse 9 is saying. These, these women might be, might be widows. Uh, with houses that are inherited from their husbands and therefore are vulnerable in that culture to exploitation. It was a very serious situation. And that may not have been the case if they were widows. They may have been married, like uh, working hard to make their home a productive place of rest for their family, for their kids, and for hospitality. Taken and robbed. The children here, specifically these women's children, the same uh, women that were robbed from, they have taken from them, these children, God's own blessing through the inheritance from their fathers. This is the indictment that stands against these individuals. In reality, it's a characterization of the nation as a whole. You might have this happening on a large scale with a few government officials or wealthy uh, folks, but it was characteristic of the entire nation. So Micah addresses them all. We see this historically. When we think about robbing and thievery, we think, man, we can think of some big times in history where, where you see this kind of thing happen, where there's oppression, socialism, abortion, stealing someone's life. This was true in the slave trade, right? Robbing people of their families, robbing people of their land, robbing people of their identities and the fruits of their labor. Or you think of like tyrants in history and how they robbed people of their property and of their work. Or pastors, you think of pastors and priests, he's going to address them here in a moment. But pastors and priests who robbed their people through false promises of healing and victory and prosperity here and now. 
I pro- you know, uh, promising, th- if they just pray harder, if they just believe God more, they shouldn't have a disease, that kind of nonsense. That's oppression, and it's wrong, and he's going to speak more to that in a moment. Or you think of robbery, with, with, sometimes dads can do this. Uh, dads who are wasting money on his hobbies so his family can't afford healthy food on the table. You might see that. Treating your wife or your children like property, not like image bearers to get as much as you can out of them. Or a husband having his wife bear the load, not, not giving his wife time away from the kids, away from the chores or whatever. Fathers who, who leave their families, who, who use their power to, to exasperate or to abuse. Uh, or you might think of like an older sibling. If you have an older sibling or you were an older sibling, somewhere in the, in, the, in the lineup of the kiddos, I was right in the middle, so I was an older and a younger. Older siblings who take advantage, always looking for the best for themselves, trying to get the biggest cookie, right? Is that relatable? Uh, make it, making their younger siblings go last. Oppression. Robbery. Or some other ways that we, those are maybe some ways we think of, other ways that we fall into this and can be guilty of this ourselves, like shoplifting, yeah, it's just a pack of gum sort of thing, they're not going to miss it, or taking something from the office, cheating on your taxes, voting to get the government to give you things that you see other people have, unjust seizure by cops, maybe you see that, um, Someone got their car taken away and they didn't do anything to have their car taken away or, or human trafficking, oppression by employees or using Jesus as a means of gain or thinking that Jesus is a means for you to get something. Not being generous and giving to your local church. The Bible describes that as a robbery against the Lord. It's evil. All of it is evil and God hates it. Quite clearly in this passage, God brings a sentence of indictment against them. He doesn't go, hey, you should change. He just says, you're wrong, here's my judgment. It's a hard passage. It's evil because he describes here in verse 1, they think they can get away with it. They meditated on it at night. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. And when the morning dawns, they go out and they do it. They perform it because it's in their power. It's in the power of their hand. They're like, hey, I can do it. I can get away with it. It's within my power. They found it easy to exploit what they saw as a loophole in the law or, as, or in an enforcement where they could get away with it, getting all they can from as many people as they could. Their God was wealth and comfort, and their own desires. This is a severe danger for the wealthy, certainly for all of us and relative wealth in our culture. It's a severe danger for the wealthy, for the powerful in particular, and for those who envy them. And for those who envy them. The love of money and the using or cheating of people who are easy to exploit rather than using our wealth and our power for doing good, for protecting the vulnerable around us, and so on. God hates this sort of thing. God hates 
such plotting of wickedness. Notice they're on their beds thinking of ways to, 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 to deprive people, to defraud people, to get things from people. And Proverbs 6.18 says that God hates plotting of wickedness. Rather than what Psalm 63.6 says, is that we should meditate on the Lord day and night. When we're on our beds, we should be thinking about how good God is, how great He is, how kind He is. Rather here, they're ruminating on their discontent. Their greed keeps them up at night. They carry it out during the day. Rather than meditating on God's word day and night, they ruminate on their discontent, their grumbling, their desires, their fears, their worries. And then in the morning, they wake up ready to go and do whatever it takes to get the thing that they think they're missing out on. What keeps you up at night? Are you able to rest in the grace and the goodness of God through Christ and His sovereignty over your life and His goodness and care for you? Or do you toss about in discontentment and envy? You know, we look real close at this passage and God's indictment against them, it kind of hits close to home. God hates robbery and God hates the coveting underneath this. This is where we want to go next, look at coveting. God hates coveting. Robbery comes from our coveting. Our coveting eyes, our coveting hearts, wanting what someone else has. Even if you're You've never stolen a thing in, in your life. You never stole your sister's candy. We've all failed at the root by coveting. We've all failed at the root, longing for that which God has not given to us, to you, or promised to us. Longing for that which God has not given or promised. Jesus has promised some things to us. He's promised to return. He's promised to judge the living and the dead. That's good news. And, and to bring his children who he, who he bought with his own blood into his eternal rest in the new heaven and new earth. These are things that God has promised. But Jesus did not promise you a marriage if you're single. Did you know that? Or a fulfilling career. Never promised it. A lot of things he didn't promise. He didn't, he didn't promise you a perfect spouse. You can nudge them. They're right next to you if you're married. He didn't promise you a perfect spouse or perfect children. Or perfect extended family. Can I get an amen? Or a bigger house. Or a bigger yard. Or a bigger truck. Nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible. And if you've not worked and saved and God hasn't provided and given you the opportunity to, through just means, obtain such things, it's a sin to point your heart towards those things. To point your heart towards those things. Coveting then often leads to fraud, often leads to things like this passage is opening up for us. Or they were wandering into violence. It's easy to see this in toddlers and crooked landlords, toddlers stealing one dinosaur that another kid's playing with. How? Why? Because of coveting. 
while surrounded maybe by a thousand dinosaurs in the room. You ever seen that? They enter unjust lending, crooked landlords do, only to kick someone to the curb who has lost a job or fallen on hard times. Easy to spot that. Coveting. And how that arises into robbery. There's things that we covet. If only my, it's the if only stuff, right, that we deal with. Things that we covet. If only my husband was more, or my wife was more. If only I was single and not held back. If only my kids were more like their kids, right? If only my parents were more like her parents. If only I was a girl instead of a boy or allowed to sleep with whoever I want, whenever I want, if only. That's coveting, right? If only I had that kind of income, I'd use it better than they, certainly. This is a big sin of our culture right now is coveting and no one wants to address it, but the Bible does. If only I was older or younger or retired or a grandparent or if I was graduated or if I were a kid again or if I were living in the 80s again or whatever. If only, if only my knees weren't so messed up or my back wasn't failing or my hair was brown or my smile was less crooked or my teeth were nicer. If only, coveting. If only I had a homestead like those folks. If only I had the kind of memory, the kind of book knowledge, the kind of computer skills or athletic abilities of this person or that. Right? We do this, don't we, in our hearts. If only I had a normal 9 to 5. If only I didn't have this boring 9 to 5. A job that I loved like he seems to. If only we could afford to go there every summer or afford a house that we didn't have to repair so often or a newer car, and on and on and on our hearts go. Things God has not given me, things God has not even promised me to look forward to, my heart runs after, makes into an idol, and even willing to sin for overtly. God gives them then a sentence for their thieving and coveting in verses 3 to 5. Therefore, thus says the Lord. So God's speaking more directly here. He's speaking through the entire Bible. Here it's like, okay, listen up. (laughs) Behold, against this family I'm devising, what's it say? Disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you will you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster he says in that day they shall take up a taunt song against you it's talking about the assyrian army going to come and ransack the nation They'll raise a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We're utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. This is God's sentence for their thieving and coveting. You give them the reason why. You've been thieving. You've been coveting. And then here's what's coming. Verses 3 to 5, here's what's coming. Here's God's sentence. Upon such a wicked family, his people, the nation of Israel, God says that he has planned an utterly humbling disaster 
a humbling disaster. God promises that which they stole will be stolen from them in a turn of irony. The punishment matches the crime. This is so true with God. The punishment matches the crime. What they, they have stolen and coveted for, God will steal back from them. They're planning evil, so God plans disaster. God plans evil against them. They tossed and they turned in coveting and greed at night, plotting how to get their desires, and God plots revenge and justice against them. It's severe. And it's, and it's hard to read of. But more than that, they will have their allotted lands, those that were rightly theirs, taken as well. In fact, this is what verse 5 alludes to. They, Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. They, they'll be wiped off the face of the earth, wiped out of God's covenant people. They'll re- be removed from it. When, when the lines are redrawn in the land, they will not be a part of it. No one will be casting the lot for them. This was so prevalent among uh, those with the means to exploit others. And this is the judgment against them. The Assyrian army is coming. 722 B.C. will be like a heavy ox yoke that they cannot escape from. That's what he's saying when he says they can't remove their neck. They can't pull their neck back there in verse, verse 3, from which you cannot remove your necks. It's like a heavy load on them. It's like a, a heavy ox yoke, like they're the ox, and it's really heavy. They cannot escape from what the Assyrians are bringing. And in contrast, the Lord's yoke is easy and is light, and, and, and they have not wanted to honor the Lord, trust the Lord, live in light of His grace. They have chosen the heavy yoke, and they will not be able to remove their neck from it. There is nothing that you can do to remove your own sin or the penalty of your sin, except that you trust in Jesus, who takes it upon himself, the heavy yoke of what we deserve on himself, and you take his easy yoke, his grace and his mercy. But these enemies will mock them. That's what verse 4 is showing us. They're mocking them. And this is a pronouncement of woe against them. You see that in verse 1. It's a pronouncement of woe. This whole passage is a particularly harrowing word. It's It's foreshadowing severe, foreboding judgment. There are many who get as much as they can before it's gone, only to lose their souls and their own lives in hell due to their oppressive, coveting idolatry. That's true of all of us, apart from Christ. Getting all we can before it's gone, with the time that we have, only to lose our souls and our lives in hell due to our idolatry. If you refuse to rest in the Lord, in His plan, in His grace, living by your idols and your selfishness, instead God will take everything away, He says. If you refuse the light yoke of Jesus, you'll give, he will give you a heavy yoke of judgment from which you will never be able to escape. That's a warning. It's a hard warning. 
And it's a hard warning for them. And it's a hard warning for for us. It's a hard warning for you today. And and a reminder that Jesus is all... Jesus is is the only thing that that can rescue us from this judgment. None will be available to measure out the land. That's verse 5. I'll skip past that because I already unpacked it. But they will not, and I'm going to jump down to verse 10 here. You can look at it. It says this, Arise and go, for this is no place to rest. He's telling them, it's going to be so bad. What you have brought through your coveting and robbery has made this a, a, a place that is not a place of rest. It's a place of turmoil, everybody against one another, defrauding one another. This is the poison that they've brought. Look what it says. Because of uncleanness, it destroys with a grievous destruction. Arise and go, for this is no more place to rest. They do not get to rest in the Lord's inheritance, where they've denied rest to those around them, to the vulnerable. So God will remove the destructive power of their unclean, ruthless greed and coveting. God will remove it. He'll remove the uncleanness from the land. He says, you want rest? You're, you're, you're taking up lands. You're defrauding people because you want that house up by the lake. <laughs> you want that truck. You want that whatever. And and here they're doing all they can to get that because they want some rest. They want to be able to sit out there with an iced tea and watch the birds. And God says, you have no rest here. You have no rest here. They rose up in enmity as enemies against the innocent in verse 8. Now must now rise up again as the Lord is against them to take away the land that they stole. Man, it's ironic, isn't it? This passage is full of that. If you want to destroy a family, refuse to repent of your coveting, find preachers who will affirm such things. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's the next section. Uh, This is what God does. It'll pollute and it will rot and it will defile many. That's the nature of our sin. It will not become a place of rest in the Lord, but full of unrest of idolatry. The same could be said of a church community or of an entire culture that chases its idols. Listen, to to live for the future now, to live in light of the future now, we must start by allowing God to declare uh, the, the nature of our sin, for God to name our sin, and that's what he's doing here. He's naming the sin. Just let God name your sin and to name your idols and to point them out And then we must own it before him and those we've sinned against. We must own it before him. Yes, God, I have sinned. I have coveted my neighbor. That's the 10th commandment. I have violated your commands. Name them. That's what he's doing. But listen, there's good news. The opposite of theft is gratitude to the God who shows mercy The God who gives grace, the opposite of theft is thankfulness. The opposite of coveting is compassion coming from the grace of God. As Christians, let's seek first his kingdom and all these things. All that you need will be added to you. And that's a means then of growing in contentment. How do you grow in contentment? Except you seek first his kingdom. I have one God. 
His name is Jesus. Not all the things that I might chase after, might desire, might grow discontent for. Things that God has not given or promised. I seek first His kingdom and I am happy. Man, as a redeemed life, Christ redeems you. You receive His redemption by faith. You can be satisfied in the Lord and seek to contribute and to produce instead of using our resources as a way to exploit others, but we use them to bless others, to contribute and to produce out of gratitude that He has redeemed me. He's given me all that I need and He always will until He takes me out. Gratitude recognizes that my sin deserves judgment, but Jesus made a way. My coveting deserves judgment, but Jesus is all I need. And he made a way for me to avoid judgment and to give me a new way of life. My greatest need is met. My greatest need is met. There's great joy here. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, there's great joy here in being content in the Lord, wherever you're at, however much you like your job or not, or your house, or your kids, or your spouse, or your in-laws. There is great joy in being content with what God has given you in His grace, in His sovereignty, Being content in the Lord, his control over everything, his grace for you that you do not deserve, and his plan for you in it. There's great joy there. When we see the goodness and the power of God in the gospel, we see his hand in what we lack. We see his hand in what we lack. In what we think we must have, we see his hand. In the crushing of our natural idols and our desires which lead us to sin and coveting and despair and theft, we see his hand. His good, sovereign hand. He cares for me. Whatever I think I deserve or need. And so, that's the first point, verses 1 to 5. God hates coveting. God hates thievery. And here's the judgment against them. But then the second thing, he flows right into condemning their prophets. (laughs) You had Isaiah and Micah prophesying around the same time. God rose them up as preachers to, to give God's perspective on what was happening and God's perspective on their history and what was coming. But they had come, they had put together their own prophets. And coveters do this, don't we? We naturally tend to grow weary of Bible preaching's negativity. This is verse 6. Look at this. Do not preach. Thus they preach. (laughs) One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Oh man, they're pretty confident. Here's what's going on. People who covet don't like to be told they're coveting. They prefer to have pastors who will affirm their coveting. We naturally tend to grow weary of, the Bible pre- of Bible preaching's negativity, telling me that I sinned, making me feel uncomfortable. It's like they read my mail. Uh, I didn't read your mail, I promise. They're ready to cancel Micah 
and the judgment from God that stands against them, they don't want to hear such fear-mongering, and they, like, they call it negativity, right? It's just so negative. It seems like the clever land grabbers had sponsored their favorite pastors, their favorite preachers who proclaimed that they were good and godly people who had, who it was obvious they were good and godly because, I mean, look how wealthy they are. Look how much fun they're having. Look how much land they got. Look how comfortable their life. Surely God is blessing them. That's what they want to hear. That's what they want to hear. Look how nice their hunting lands are, how nice their house is by the lake. Surely they are doing something right. Surely they believe God better than those other people. That's the kind of preaching they prefer. They prefer pastors who are all gentle and lowly towards them, never confronting or opposing their idols, always affirming their discontentment, always affirming their coveting, always affirming their constant winning. Preachers who are afraid of being whined at and grumbled at, afraid of being accused of being mean, will shape their, here's the danger, will shape their message around people's coveting. And people's idolatry for fear of being told that they uh, need to make their preaching a little less painful, a little less difficult, a little less frustrating. These silence and they cancel preachers that they disapprove of, preachers who seem to be talking directly at them, preachers who uh, are guilty of shaming them by opening God's word, those who refuse to affirm them and their self-justification and sin. Listen. If we rid the land of godly pastors who open the Bible and who sometimes stand against the culture and even against us as they do so, if we want to get rid of them, we will do a massive disservice to ourselves, to our households, to our cities, and to our nations, wherever you're from. We will not be said to, it will we will not be said to be seeking the welfare of anything, but rather its sure destruction in self-deception. Because God's word cuts through all of it. That's why we you guys here just like our church, we like to preach through books of the Bible. Just let God talk. We're here to hear him. Those enjoying power and wealth and ease can't comprehend being disgraced. They're used to winning. They don't want what Micah has to say, what God has to say. Bad preachers will tell you all about God's love, all about how you're good with God while refusing to to submit and repent of sin and to submit to Jesus' rule. Bad pastors will give you all about love and no confrontation of our sin. They prefer preachers who affirm their idols and affirm their covenant. They prefer preachers who promote hedonism. That's why he ends there. He's like, the, the kind of pastor they want is one who just promises them more, more beer. <laughs> Amen. Right? Like, that's the kind of preacher they want. He's mocking them. Because it's true. They just want hedonism. They just want to get what they can get. To find themselves. To treat themselves. You know, to be true to themselves. To be true to their own dreams and desires and lusts and ambitions. Preachers who tell them, Yes. Do that. 
Make that your idol. Make that your life. They preach that you'll find rest. You'll save your soul by getting the world, by gaining as much of your dreams as possible. These are preachers and podcasters everywhere afraid to tell you the truth, afraid to, to tell you the Bible. And uh, they deceive. They distort the truth. They lead people astray. And what a warning. What a, what a danger. Man, I'm thankful for brothers like Ricky uh, uh, other, other faithful pastors in history, uh, our own lead pastor, Pastor Chris, who, man, just open the Bible. We need, we need the real news, uh, which is bad news and then good news. Bad news that I, I have fallen short of the glory of God in my heart. And the good news that Jesus comes to make me new. He has come to make me new. And he gives rest for our souls. We are naturally tempted to judge God's judgments to be unfair though, aren't we? Like, man, God's judgments, man, his, uh, what he's saying here just seems a little, too, a little too much. He could have just slapped them on the wrist, that'd be good, but look at verse 4. And that day they'll uh, raise a taunt against you and then you say, we are utterly ruined. He, so, I mean, see, there's truth there. Your heart, they were utterly ruined. He changes the, listen to this though, they accuse God. He changes the portion of my people. He's accusing, they're accusing God of being dishonest and, and God have given them a bad deal. How he removes it from me. God is holding out on me. God's refusing from me what I deserve and what I need. God is at fault here. And then in verse 7, should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Like, God's just a meanie. Hey, he's just a little hot-tempered. He, he's just, uh, he's just a, a, mean, a mean guy, right? That's, that's verse 7. Has God grown impatient? Are these his deeds? And then God replies, do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Jesus walked uprightly. That means this passage is uh, a warning for all of us, isn't it? It's a reminder to all of us that what we need is Jesus. Because unless you walk uprightly, these words are bad news. But because of Jesus and through faith in what he has done for me, he puts his righteous account to mine. What Jesus did in his life now becomes true of me, though I've done nothing but sin. He goes to the cross to bear my sin, to bear my shame, to bear the judgment that was laid to me. He puts it to his account, takes his righteousness, puts it to my account. Oh man, is this not good news? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly now what I have not done. What Jesus has done is true of me. Now is true of me. Now all the good news in this passage is true of me. I'll close in this. This passage is bad news for those who weary of God's word, who weary of his word, who, who disobey God in coveting and robbing. It's bad news. And that's all of us without repentant faith in Jesus. 
This passage, though, is good news, like that verse said, for those who trust the Word of God and come under the grace of Jesus in repentance by, and therefore leading to a life that is full of gratitude to God and love for others. It's good news because, this passage is good news, because people can be downright mean. You ever feel that? You ever see people steal and bring their coveting up against you? You've been sinned against. You've, others have sought to rob you and defraud you and harm you unjustly. If you've lived a minute in this world, you face that. And this is good news for us because God's judgments are righteous. And we can rest in his righteous judgment. He will avenge. We can rest in his vengeance. Or in his salvation, the vengeance put on Christ. The Lord, through Micah, calls us to live the future now. To live the future All the promises of God have been fulfilled in Christ. There's more to come. We get to walk in light of that future. I'm quoting Pastor Ricky Love, a famous preacher that I once heard of. Uh, but listen to this. He will vanquish all wickedness. He will vanquish all wicked coveting, which is idolatry. That's what he's going to do. All false teaching, which misrepresents God and his word. God will vanquish it all. The risen sun will reign over all, and he will give his people rest on a new earth. That's what's coming. We live in light of that future reality now by letting Jesus conquer our natural inclinations which speak falsely about God and his goodness and his provision and his providence for us. We let the cruel cross of Jesus have the dominant word in our lives and in our hearts. We let Jesus' resurrection from the dead draw our eyes up and ahead. We let those realities define our circumstances, whatever they are. We refuse to interpret God's word through the lens of our frustrations and longings. By his grace, instead, we interpret our hardships and our desires by the pain, by, sorry, by the plain and undiluted word of the living God, what he says. Only when we rest under his grace, under his word, will we truly begin to experience our future rest now in him. In him, we have all we need or could ever imagine or ask for, and that is what he is preparing for us. And so we can say, like Micah's name means, who is like the Lord? We've warranted all these judgments, and Christ takes it upon himself, being exiled from the blessing of God at the cross, that you might be welcomed in. Let's pray.